Our topic today is Latin Mass Catholic, Preserving Tradition, and we are honored today to have Monsignor John Fritz. He is a member of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, or FSSP, which is a community of Roman Catholic priests who celebrate and promote the traditional Latin Mass. That's what he's here to talk to us about. He has been a the pastor of St. Stanislaus now since it was founded, which is around one year, so it's a very young parish. So if we can all welcome him tonight, that would be great. First things first, I'm out of beer. Thank you. The more you drink, the better I sound, so... First of all, I thank you, like to thank you all for coming, particularly my ringers in the crowd, all the St. Stan's people. Thank you. <laughs> You're not supposed to let people know where you are. Thank you. Um, this is a different talk than I've ever been asked to give before. I didn't move. It's, oh, okay. Thank you for taking it. Um, I don't normally talk when people are eating. So it's a little weird. Um, also, um, sometimes it's easier for me to answer questions than just to provide information because I never know if I'm completely off track or not. My assumption is I'm usually off track. Um, so I will go down a particular track and we can follow that track if you like in the question and answer period or we can talk about something else. I'm pretty open to talking about anything else. Um, including, no, never mind. There may be Cubs fans in the room. <laughs> the purpose of my talk, though, is to speak about traditional Latin Mass Catholics and the preservation of tradition. So first, what I would like to, to speak about is tradition in general. Tradition is a very difficult word. We use it a lot. And we use it in different senses, particularly in the theology, but even just in normal common parlance. And sometimes we even use the word custom. It means the same as tradition. So we'll start off talking about tradition in general, see if we can't get some sort of working definition, um, and then see how it applies to the faith. Because it's important to, if we're talking about preserving tradition, we have to first answer the question, right, is it worth preserving? That's a, it's an assumption, right, in the title of the talk. And then the second thing would be talking about tradition as regards the rule of faith, which is a phrase maybe you don't normally hear, rule of faith. And then finally, specifically, how the Mass, the liturgy, is a monument or a witness to tradition, specifically the traditional Latin Mass, which we have at St. Stanislaus. Um, so I will actually gauge your reaction if you look more intent on your burgers and your beer than me, I'll just move ahead, and then I'll wait for your questions. Uh, if you're wrapped with attention, then we can follow down that, that line um, as we want. So first, tradition. We all have experienced some sort of tradition. Many of our traditions that we have in life are somehow tied with our religion, right? One of the biggest traditions that we all have, I'm sure, revolve around Christmas. Now it's less than six months away, which is great. I love Christmas. Partly because we all have 
hopefully, ah, you're my new friend. Thank you. And now I can be honest. More honest, I mean. We all have some sort of tradition, especially usually around Christmas, right? For me, growing up, I'm the youngest of eight boys. Now, before you say, oh, wow, uh, come to St. Stanislaus, that's not really a big thing. Uh, at least the number-wise. All boys is a bit tricky. Um, so I always loved Christmas because all my family was home, and you know, you get up early morning, and uh, the smells of Christmas. For me, smells of Christmas are cinnamon, because the cinnamon rolls, fresh brewed coffee, um, grapefruit. We always had grapefruit. Um, and you know the, the smell of wrapping paper and tape and pine and all those things of the season. We identify with these things and we want them to continue over and over. And then usually about the time you're 17, 18 maybe, you hit that time where it wasn't Christmas this year. Right, something, and if anybody messes with Christmas, I mean, my I'm I'm 43 now. Not that I'm proud that I made it this far, but not so bad. My mother is 86, and I still quite haven't completely forgiven her for not having a real pine tree at Christmas, which was back in probably 1978, because it was a disruption of my tradition. Right, we all have something like that. We all have some sort of custom or tradition that it isn't quite the same if something's missing, right? And it's something that we've received. So that's the important thing to remember about tradition. It's not something we create. We don't create tradition. Now, some of you will maybe have ideas. If you've already started a family, maybe you will be starting a family. That this is what I want my family to do. You, you have something that may be slightly different than you grew up with. You have to meld traditions from the mother's side and the father's side, whatever. You try to start a new tradition, but you don't know if it's actually going to take off, right? It's not tradition until you look back. When you're starting something, it's, it's novel. So the thing about tradition is it's received. It's an objective thing outside of us that is a gift to me. But it's also something that the person giving it has himself received. Until, obviously, you always get back to the primogenitor of the tradition. Now, of course, when we're talking about the deposit of faith, when we're talking about theological tradition, who is the, the consigner of the tradition? Our Lord. Right. Jesus Christ. He gives us the tradition. There are many other traditions, though, in the faith. And uh, I don't normally do this, but by a show of hands, how many people were at the last talk? Just curious. Okay. The last talk was on Eastern rites, correct? They have their own tradition. Catholic, in the sense of universal, but they have their own traditions. What we're talking about when I speak tonight, I'm using tradition in two main ways. One, in general, when I speak of theological tradition, that is those things which protect the deposit of faith that deposit of faith which comes directly from the Son of God made man to give us the truths and the moral teaching which is necessary for our salvation. And then as it develops, particularly in the Western Church, which at least numerically is the bulk of the Catholic Church because of Europe, because of the New World, 
Um, and the spread of the Latin rite, most of the world, most of the Catholic word is, world is of the Western Church, the Latin rite. So, tradition is something that is received and passed on. It's not something created. And when someone is given a tradition, the intent of the original consigner is important, isn't it? Right? Naturally. It's, it's, if we look at tradition, maybe if we change the term, maybe we'll change our way of looking at it. Looking at it as a, a trust, as some sort of, to use scripture terms, a pearl of great price. Right? The pearl itself is passed on. The pearl can't be changed. It is not in the purview of those who receive the pearl to change the pearl. The whole point of passing the pearl is to keep it a pearl and to pass it. Now, certain things may happen to the pearl. You can shine it up. You can neglect it, and it gets murky. But it always has to stay a pearl, and it passes on. Um, so that's what we need to do as Catholics. Why do we need to do it as Catholics? Why is tradition important to us as Catholics? Because ours is a historical religion. Without history, our religion doesn't really exist. Why do I say that? Because our history is based on the Incarnation. Our, our, our religion is God becoming man, entering into time, living as a man, right, and dwelt among us, as the first chapter of St. John's Gospel says. He dwelt among us as a man. Did our Lord write anything down? The only record we have in the Gospels that he wrote anything was when he wrote something in the sand at the scene of the woman caught in adultery. And it doesn't say what he wrote. When he ascended into heaven and gave the apostles their final mandate, he didn't say, write the world a manual. Or, here is the manual. He founded a church. And he gave them a mandate. Go to all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And teach them all that I have commanded you. We have the beginning tradition of the church. So we have God making a tradition. Even before this, right? The first revelation is discussions with Adam and Eve in the garden. Even more, perhaps importantly, with Abraham, our father in faith. More specifically, with Moses and the Old Covenant. And then in the fullness of time, his son, which is based on all of that tradition, all of that passing on. Where would the apostles have been had that tradition not been handed on to them until that time? Can you imagine with the apostles praying without the Psalms? Those are the hymns our Lord himself sang. The hymns our Lord himself sang on the night he was betrayed and before he died. Because it was passed on, unadulterated. 
It's a gift. So the, perhaps the first most important thing I want to, to stress to you this evening is that tradition is a gift. A gift of most importance because our whole faith is tied to it. Because there's one source of revelation, right? Christ and his gospel. But it comes to us in two primary ways. Scripture, which is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And tradition. All those things which our Lord commanded the apostles in person to teach the world. And we can trace, to skip ahead a bit, we can trace some of the elements of the traditional Latin Mass directly back to the apostles, specifically Peter, the prince of the apostles. So, I ask you the same question St. Paul asks in the letter to the Corinthians. What do you have, particularly as Catholics, but in general, philosophically, as anything, what do you have that you have not received Anything. There is nothing that you actually have that you've not received. Particularly your being. All things come from God. All things are in the providence of God. But particularly in the faith. The faith is not something we invent. It is not something that we create. It is something that is given to us. It is a gift. It is a gift of God. It's a theological virtue. And that theological virtue enables us to assent to the revealed doctrines that our Lord reveals to the church. That's where they come from. So the first rule of faith, moving on now to the rule of faith. God is the primary rule of faith. The rule is from Latin, regula, which is that uh, something that how you know that you're keeping the faith. Right? How do you know that you're believing correctly? Because faith of itself isn't salvific. Right? It's not just faith in anything. Has anyone here uh, ever read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy? Very good book. Very good author. Highly recommend it. In the beginning of it, if those of you who've read it remember the scene where he sees that he's having this conversation uh, with this fellow and who's a publisher... And he says, you know, uh, that guy's going places. He believes in himself. And just at that moment, there's a bus that goes by that Chesterton saw, and it was an ad for an insane asylum. He says, you know who believes in themselves? Everyone there. You know, and he's talking to this publisher. He says, that man who spent his life writing this novel that you rejected, he believed in himself. It's not the fact of belief. We all believe in something. It takes a great amount of faith, actually, to be an atheist. But it's what we believe that's important. That we assent to truth. And so God is the primary rule of faith. Because, remember, from your basic catechism, your basic prayers, God, whom we have faith in, can neither deceive nor be deceived. He cannot lie. So, the rule of faith is something extrinsic. It's something extrinsic to our faith, and it serves as a norm or measure to make sure that we are believing correctly. That's what the rule of faith is. It's the standard by which we test what we believe 
to determine if what we are believing is in fact true. It's how we know, especially when we get um, presented with a novelty, some new thing. When we get some new thing, we always have to test it. That's how we, and I'm not just speaking about things of the faith. I'm thinking about anything that we learn, right? We learn by comparing it to things that we already know. Comparing it, abstracting principles, abstracting universals, comparing, this is, oh, this is like something I know, and this is how it's different. Therefore, it's a new thing. Okay, now I know this, and I learned something new, and I compare it to things that I already know. The same thing with the faith. The faith is a given. The deposit of faith comes down unadulterated from the apostles through their, their successors, the bishops. So, the divine and Catholic faith is all of these things. This is what basically the rule of faith is. That the divine and Catholic faith is all of those things to be believed, which are contained in the written word of God or tradition, and proposed by the church by a solemn judgment or by the ordinary universal magisterium, as divinely revealed to be believed. That's what's called de fide, of divine Catholic faith. We believe it because God has revealed it. And that is the deposit of faith that comes down through Scripture and tradition. I often like to ask people, which came first, the church or the Bible? I'm sure you all know the answer, right? Thank you. You may want to do the same. Okay, so we have this rule of faith. God reveals. And there are certain things that God reveals that only we can only know through that way. Those are the supernatural truths. We could not reason. We could not come to the truth that God is a trinity. He has to reveal that. There are other things that God does reveal that corroborates what we can know by reason. That he exists. We can know that by reason. Vatican, first Vatican Council. Uh, there's a second Vatican Council because there was a first, you know. Uh, the first Vatican Council said that you can know God by unaided reason. But God also reveals it to reaffirm. Right? There are certain things that we know by reason, by even intuition, by the natural law, that we ought to do or ought to believe, but God reveals it to reaffirm it. Because of original sin, we often get things wrong. So God reveals, and that's the primary rule of our faith, this deposit. This is expressed and passed on by a secondary rule, the active tradition. Now, this active tradition is a proximate rule. That is, it's more close to us, because God revealing, especially for us now in the 21st century, was a bit, it's a bit removed we were, we're not with St. Peter, we're not with St. John, we're not with St. James. We're not there on Tabor seeing the transfigured Lord. We're not there to hear the Sermon on the Mount. So we have a proximate rule by which to compare what we believe to make sure that it's true. And part of that is the current living magisterium, which passes on the object of our faith. All these truths which are necessary for our salvation, but all those other things that God commanded the apostles to teach. Now, the remote things of tradition, things such as scripture, of the def definitive teachings of the prior magisterium, all those wonderful definitions of the Council of Trent, if you've not read them, do it. It's, 
It's great if you're into that. If you're not, then if you have insomnia, you're welcome. <laughs> also, the creeds, right? The creeds are very simple statements of what we believe. And that's what the catechism is. The catechism is in a, an, uh, a drawing out of what's in the creed. So you have 12 articles in the Apostles' Creed. That's basics of the faith. But then you need how many pages to explain each article. Did you ever notice that? How, did you ever look and see, investigate exactly how a catechism is set up? That's what it does. The main things, the way a catechism is set up is it takes the creed, the 12 articles of the faith, and explains them. In more detail. It takes the Ten Commandments and explains them in more detail. And then it takes the Lord's Prayer and explains those petitions in more detail. That is part of the development that we have in tradition. It's not simply taking a cold statement and passing it on, right? It's explaining it. It's making it richer. Because tradition is guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still with us. The Holy Spirit is still educating, is still guiding, is still sanctifying. So, we also get the remote tradition from monuments. That is, the current magisterium, of which the current magisterium is the steward and the guardian. That's very important. And do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? Some? Some? Okay. I'm not talking about the movies. I'm talking about the books. Okay. I'm not a big fan, but I'm somewhat familiar. Uh, somebody might have to remind me, though, because I'm not that big of a fan. Who was it? Wasn't there was a, a steward of Gondor, right? Waiting for the king? Who's? Aragorn's the king of what? I forget. Somebody. Gondor, right? And so there's the steward there waiting for the arrival of the king, but he's not been a really good steward. And we have examples, perhaps something I'm more familiar with, uh, the Gospels, uh, the so many parables of the good and the bad stewards, right? Steward is not the owner. He's not the, he doesn't have dominion over the property. He's a caretaker. He's a guardian. That's the job of the magisterium. That's the job of the church, is to guard, to be a good steward, to keep intact what was given. That's the job. And that's why it's important to listen to the magisterium, because that's her job, is to be faithful to Christ and to be a rule for us to make sure that what we believe and how we are living is consonant with what Christ taught. And that's why when we have introduction of novelty, new things, it becomes dangerous. It becomes confusing. And then you get into the state. What was the, the end result? What was the guy's name? I forget. Sorry? Lord Elrond. Lord Elrond. Thank you. For, thank you. So he, he came to a kind of a bad end, right? Yep. <laughs> Death is a bad end in literature. That's not always a good end in life either, but... Um, so... We have to have the obedience of faith. We often don't think of that, do we? That faith requires obedience. 
because the definition of faith is assent of the intellect to the truth revealed by God, because it's God revealing. It's not because it's what I'm saying. This is, the, this is, <laughs> this is why I like preaching more than giving these talks. Because this is stuff I've got to figure out and try to explain to you. Preaching is, I'm giving Christ's message to you. It's a lot easier. I'm just the messenger. Right? That's the, that's the important thing. My opinion, when I give you my opinion, I try to tell you that it's clearly my opinion as opposed to what the church is teaching, what our Lord is teaching, just to tr- as help. So if any of this is helpful, take it, run with it. If it's not, ignore it. Who am I? Because the most important thing is what Christ taught. And that's why we even have the church. And that's why we have tradition, because Christ came into time, into history. Because that's according to our nature. See, the, the message is given, is always given according to the mode of the receiver. Think of that for just a second. Truth or information is always given according to the mode of the receiver. See, if God just used his own language, we wouldn't get it. How do you understand what God talks? He has to put it into our understanding. And the most clear understanding for us is for him to enter into time, become a man, and die for us, and give us a church to guide us. Right. So that's part of the divine plan. So we all stand in relation to prior tradition as believers, even members of the magisterium. Because St. Paul's question applies to them as well, whether we be priests or bishops or pope. What do you have that you have not received? That's the key. Everything we get is from the tradition. So... We get not only what is necessary for our salvation through tradition and also the scriptures, but we also get that wisdom of how to make spiritual progress. Why would we want to reinvent the wheel when we have luminaries like Catherine of Siena, like St. Therese of Lisieux, like St. John of the Cross, like Ignatius of Loyola, if you're going down a path, well, doesn't it make sense to inquire someone who's been there? That's part of the tradition. Also, the understanding of the faith. Remember, we're all, this, this should help you hopefully be merciful to yourself and to those around you. We're all operating under the penalty of original sin. And you all remember what those are, right? Darkened intellect makes it difficult to, to understand and comprehend the truth. And a weakened will makes it difficult to do the good. So it's difficult for us to understand the truths of the faith. We need help for that. We need help for that. And part of that is being obedient to the tradition. Being obedient to the teaching of the church as it is handed on to us. In the magisterium, in the teaching of the fathers of the church, in the teaching of the doctors of the church, and the common consent of the theologians. The good ones, I don't mean the crazy ones. Common consent of the theologians these days is a little bit trickier. Uh, It just is. It just is. That's, That's a whole other talk, isn't it, I suppose. I digress. More specifically... 
Yes, more specifically, this, this, you probably came wondering, oh, who's this old Monsignor going to be talking about the Mass? And you get some middle-aged guy swilling beer talking about tradition and catechism. Sorry. Uh, okay, on to, on to the liturgy, on to the Mass. Who here has heard of the phrase lex orandi, lex credendi? I see you know some Latin. Oh, wait, they're all my Saint Stan's people. Hang on. Anybody, Saint Stan's people, not allowed to raise your hand. Who here has heard of Lex Credendi, Lex Orandi, or Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi? I got a couple, a couple. Come on. All right, maybe I'll translate it for you. The law of praying is the law of belief. Heard of that sentiment? Seriously. Oh, this is not on you. This is, yeah, it's bad times, man. Bad times. Okay, well, now you've heard it. Lex orandi, lex credendi. See, the law of praying is the law of be- belief. As you believe, that informs how you pray. Makes sense. You don't pray as Buddhists. You don't pray as Muslims. You pray as Catholics. You pray to Christ. You pray to his mother. You pray to the saints. Makes sense. But also, as you pray, that also informs the way you believe. And that's one of the reasons I'm in the priesthood fraternity of St. Peter. Because the way we pray informs the way we believe. And the way we pray in the traditional Latin Mass is traditionally. It's in that same vein as John Vianney, as St. Thomas Aquinas, as St. Augustine. Because it's unadulterated, passed down to us, these rituals that we pass down. So the law of praying is the law of belief. Now, in the liturgy, the Holy Spirit speaks again. you realize that? See, we often think that we are a bit shortchanged. Have you ever, usually around Holy Week, I always think I'm a bit shortchanged because I wasn't there, right? You ever had that desire, a Good Friday, to be there? If I were there, if I were with St. Peter, I wouldn't have denied him. If I were there, I would be there right with St. John. I'd be right there with Our Lady. Really? Uh, not so sure. If we're really honest, we probably would have run away naked with John Mark the night before and probably kept on running until we hit the Alps. That's just me. Maybe you'll be better. But we have the sense that we missed something, which is true. Those blessed souls of that time were particularly blessed to be there at that time. They were, all of them, to witness that, to be there for that. But we must count ourselves particularly blessed to be in our time. First of all, because God's providence has made you in this time. This is your time. This is our time. And therefore, we have a job to do in our time. But also, because we're born after all that revelation, we are are existing after 2,000 years of development, of tradition, And it's the same spirit through the scriptures. He authored the scriptures, the divine author. It's the same spirit who is in tradition guiding the church. And in speaking through the liturgy, as Dom Garanger said, the liturgy is tradition itself at its highest degree of power and solemnity. That's something. You may not know who Dom Garanger is, he's a French priest. Um, 
who refounded the monastery of Salem after after French uh, after France was devastated by multiple revolutions. He refounded Salem, founded the chant, and, and revivified the Benedictine order. The liturgy is tradition itself at its highest degree of power and solemnity. And as it, it's a means, the liturgy, and now when I say liturgy, maybe if you're still got a hangover from last, I don't mean that literally. I mean, if you're still thinking of things that were spoken of last week in the Eastern, they use liturgy normally for mass. When we use it in the West, we, liturgy is the mass, the divine office, the public worship of the church. Uh, and so we often have to think of mass and the divine office together. They're, they're a unit even though mostly it's just um, priests and religious praying it. Uh, um, not all, but most. But the liturgy is a means that the Holy Spirit uses other than written transmission. It's a living transmission. And first, it is the liturgy is profoundly educative. That's not its primary purpose. Primarily, specifically, the Mass... The Mass is a sacrifice. It is worship and adoration of God. But all of it is educative, just as Holy Scripture is. All of Scripture is good for instruction. St. James says, it's Scripture. So you can kind of take that to the bank. But so is the liturgy. And not in the sense of being pedantic. I know most of you here, many of you here, uh, attend the, the, the reform rite, the, the, the form of Mass uh, from Pope Paul VI after the Council, there's a lot of readings, isn't it? You're spoken to a lot, aren't you? It has this kind of almost classroom type of thing. It, it gives you a lot of scripture in that kind of way. The difference in the traditional Latin Mass is that the scripture is all throughout. It, it's all educative but in a different way. Just in a different way. Also, the unwritten transmitting of tradition through the liturgy does things that are not contained formally in Scripture. Right? Because remember, at the Ascension, our Lord didn't say, here's the Bible, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Apostles hadn't gotten around to it. They just kind of got over the fact that our Lord is raised from the dead. Something uh, takes some time to process. So all these things not contained formally in Scripture are somehow communicated to us in the Mass and in the office. And finally, the Mass particularly, but also the office, the liturgy in general, is a way of interpreting Scripture. It's a way of interpreting Scripture. Not simply looking things up of, well, what did St. Jerome say about this passage? Or looking at a commentary, this scripture scholar said this, what this means. No, 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 no. How does the church understand her own book? If we think sometimes of the church as a person, as truly the bridegroom of Christ, and that she has this possession, the book, the Bible, how does she use it to feed her children? She does it through the liturgy, and she understands the meaning of the scripture because she has the Holy Spirit guiding her to see meaning there, to put meaning there that we would never get without her juxtaposing certain texts together in the liturgy. She says, my children, pray this way and see what you find. That's 
very important. So first, that the Mass, particularly the traditional Latin Mass, is, is educative. So it's not wholly instructive, but it is exclusively, uh, but not exclusive. Let me say that again. It is wholly instructive. That is, you can derive meaning from everything in the Mass, but it's not exclusively so, right? That's not the purpose. So what we do in the Mass is the celebration of the whole Christian mystery. The temporal cycle, we celebrate the whole life of Christ in a traditional manner, right? What are the main seasons of the year? Anybody? Start at the beginning. Thank you. Next. No, ordinary time. I said next, chronologically. After Advent. Great, thank you. After Christmas. Okay, I'll, I'll help you out. This is, the, this is the one problem we run into because the calendar's been changed. Right? So, yeah, exactly. Except to adjustment. People are throwing things up. Okay, so we... The main thing, the main two, the main two seasons for, for for any Catholic calendar centers around two what great mysteries: Christmas and Easter. Even though Christmas actually technically isn't the second most important feast of the church, the first what what what's the greatest feast of the church? Easter, Easter right? Easter. That is everything revolves around that. It's the the one place in in our whole religion, that centers around a nothingness. Ever think of that? It centers around an empty tomb. The whole point is he's not there. That's really important. That he's not there. So Easter. And then the second most important, of course, is Pentecost. And the third, Epiphany. Not just because it's my birthday. (laughs) Although that does make it very special. Uh, because it's the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles, to the world, and then Christmas is actually about fourth. But we celebrate liturgically, right, those two great hinges of Christmas and Easter. So Advent, preparing for Christmas, Lent, specifically preparing for Easter, um, and then we have even what we in the Novus Ordo called ordinary time, we call uh, time after Epiphany or time after Pentecost, um, is, I always kind of think of it as being in Nazareth. Right, it's the, we're focusing on the teachings of our Lord. But everything is centered around Christ, the head. He's the head of the body. It's Christ's life. But then we have juxtaposed on that too, the sanctoral cycle, right? The big saints, some of which I've already named. Therese, Catherine, Augustine, Jerome, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, Saints Peter and Paul, who we just celebrated, um, St. John the Baptist, so, because in the liturgy, it's a whole, it's wholly educative. Not in the sense that every text that you learn something from, but the whole season, the whole purpose is a holistic education. That is, it's teaching you about the whole body. Not just Christ the head in the temporal cycle. It's teaching you about the saints, which is the body of the church. Those who have gone before us and won the crown. So, we're not simply taught. That's what... These things are for. That's what sermons are for. That's what school is for. We're not simply taught at Mass, but at Mass we celebrate. We realize, and what is communicated to us is this tradition. And Latin Mass Catholics, for maybe perhaps a, 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 a 
lack of a better way of saying it, we want it in the same way that it's been handed down over years and years and years and years. We want it in the same way. Because there's this sense that we're getting the whole thing. Because remember, the whole thing about tradition is not merely passing on. It's receiving and guarding and passing on unadulterated. It's not creative and it's not, you don't mess with it in a sense. So the liturgy brings truth to, uh, to us in a living way. Um, mass communicates the whole reality of the faith in its own unique way. For example, the sign of the cross. Have you ever really stopped and thought, that's the most basic prayer we have? We often do it hurriedly, which is a shame. That's the most fundamental prayer because it's, it, it gets to the heart of what we are. The two great mysteries revealed to us, which we could not have known outside of supernatural revelation, which we could not have known if, unless there was a tradition, is the Trinity and the Incarnation, particularly the death of the Son of God on the cross. You see how beautifully the church has welded those together in the most fundamental, simple prayer, the beginning of the liturgy? That's how all liturgies start, the sign of the cross. Also, for example, this is unique to the traditional Latin Mass. At the end of the canon, the canon is a term meaning rule, it's like regula, it's the called often now the Eucharistic prayer, and, and there's only one in the traditional Latin Mass. We have the same one over and over again. Um, not that that's a bad thing, it's actually a really good thing because it's so rich. But at the end, there's this particular thing that the priest does. At the end, we, that's after the consecration, and we have the chalice and the, the host on the corporal. And the, the priest picks it up, and making a sign of the cross three times over the chalice, says, per ipsum cum ipso et in ipso. Three times. Whenever you see three in, the, in, in anywhere, what do you think of? Trinity. Trinity. Right. <laughs> Snatch. Right. Simple. Simple question. But what we have symbolically is the host over the precious blood, making three signs of the cross, through him, with him, and in him, symbolizing the Trinity that exists from all time. And then you take the, the priest takes the host away from the chalice and over a blank spot on the corporal where it once laid. And then he mentions the two persons of the Blessed Trinity that is not Christ. So you mention the Father and you mention the Holy Ghost making two signs of the cross. What does the two usually think of, make you think of? Two natures. Hypostatic union. The other great mystery of our religion. The hypostatic union that Christ is fully God and fully man. But he came, right? So he came away from that inner life, that eternal life of the Trinity. He became man for the sake of revealing the other two persons. Like there is God the Father, I am the Son, and there is a Holy Spirit. So we have right here the Trinity, and now the Incarnation, and then the Redemption, because Christ goes back. The host goes back, and then is elevated the mention of glory. 
So we have the whole economy of salvation and a very terse, which is very Roman, very small gesture and prayer. The whole meat of the revelation of Christ and his life on earth. The Trinity, the Incarnation, the Redemption, the Ascension. All right there, the end of every Mass. This gives you some insight, not only what I just said, but in the way I said it, of why some of the people among you go to the Latin Mass. Why I say it. Because it protects the deposit of faith like nothing else. Because it was handed down to us unadulterated. Um, I have other things to say, which are more or less interesting. <laughs> more interesting to me than to you. Let me just, because I'm, I'm running out of time, let me just kind of sum up things with this, because I spent so much time on tradition, not so much the Mass. Hopefully we'll get to the, the questions about the Mass and the question and answers. I'd be happy to add, talk about this stuff a, a lot. But this is the key. The short answer, if anybody were to ask me, which maybe you, you will, depends on how much you've had to drink, you might ask me anyway. Again, um, why do you say the Latin Mass? One of the main reasons is because I want to do the exact same gestures. I want to say the exact same words as all those priests before me. Because it's traced back to the apostles. I want to say the exact same words and do the exact same gestures as Padre Pio, as John Vianney, as Dominic, as St. Thomas Aquinas, as St. Jerome. Because the Mass is that old. Because also that's what they gave me. It's a sense of docility, which we all have to have to the teaching of the church. Because it comes from Christ. We have to be docile to what we're taught. But also in a spirit of thanksgiving. That they gave me this great gift. To love it. To appreciate it. And do my best to hand it on. At least the minimum in the same shape that I got it. If not better. So I think according to the schedule. We'll, we'll call that the end of the talk. <laughs> I'm not good at this whole You'd think I'd be better as a German, you know, German extract. I'd be very organized, but, but I'm not. Um, so thank you for your rapt attention. Um, I think now we have some small group questions, and then we can come back and have general question and answer, which actually might be more illuminative for you. I've been going to the Latin Mass for quite a while now. And, thank um, you. <laughs> but I really struggle with getting my family to actually go. It's almost like how to get them from the, like, no, we're Vatican II and we're just looking forward, we're not looking backward kind of idea. Um, any suggestions? Because I, I would love them to come and see the Mass, the beauty right. of it that I see, but it's hard to get them to actually, like, you know, they think that maybe it's something wrong. Uh, well, th that's... Yeah, it's, it's difficult to... There, there's a lot of misconceptions about the Mass. Um, a lot... We're, we're living in very difficult times. I often say that we're living under the Chinese curse. You know what the Chinese curse is? May you live in interesting times. Yeah, it's very interesting these days. Um, but to... One is to keep plumbing the depths of the beauty yourself. 
so that you have a reservoir on which to share with people of, of what it's about. And obviously, we're safe stands is a safe place. <laughs> I say that, and I just thought of, boy, that was a really noisy Fourth of July. Um, but uh, in the sense that that the bishop has uh, erected us. I mean, we're we're in union with the bishop. We're, we're we're Catholic in the sense that you know we're in union with Rome and 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 friendly with very friendly with the bishop. Not many people know this, but Bishop Rhodes was my rector at seminary. So we actually have a nice history, which makes a very nice um, working relationship. But my thing is to keep encouraging people and to, to understand, um, especially any of you who've maybe tried Latin Mass, and um, it's difficult. I get that. That was difficult for me, right? To, to, it's, it's like a different world. It's, it's very different than what we're used to. I mean, I grew up, I, mean, I, was, I was born in 1973. I grew up in the Novus Ordo. I grew up in English Mass. I mean, yeah, I didn't even know that there was a difference between Latin Mass and the, the English Mass, except for the language. It wasn't until I was in seminary that I'm like, oh, wait, there's a whole lot more different. Um, so it's, it's a different atmosphere. It's a different way of worship that takes some getting used to. So I would kind of expand the invitation to your family, to everyone here, especially those who, who you've not tried it. You can't go once and try it. That's not a try. I say you have to kind of go six or seven times and be really docile and really open to it um, because it is so different. And don't try to follow along. Don't try to do too much. I think that's the other thing that, you know, people make a lot of mistakes. They, they come in with a lot of baggage and preconceptions, for one, um, thinking it's, it's one thing and it's, it's something else. And the other thing is that you try to do too much. What I usually tell people, come to the High Mass, 10 o'clock, Sundays, St. Stanislaus, 415 North Brookfield. Um, come and just experience the Mass. Our choir is quite good. And just watch the ceremony, listen to the music, and just almost as an, an ex, a, aesthetic experience. And because the one thing I like about the Latin Mass, not from a priest point of view, from a, a general, even a lay point of view, it's very versatile in the way you can pray at it. Okay? The Novus Ordo, one of the complaints I had and that many other people have is you're kind of forced into this role, right? You always got to answer. You got to shake somebody's hand. You got to do this. You got to do something. Which th there is some benefit to that kind of activity, but that's not required at the Latin Mass. You're, you can engage the beauty. You can engage our Lord on different in different ways, which I think that versatility, that diversity is very unique and very beautiful to the Mass. You can come and pray the rosary and meditate on the sorrowful passion because you're at Calvary at Mass, right? It's a sacrifice. It's the one sacrifice of Christ represented in an unbloody manner. So you're there. So you can participate in that way. You can follow along and pray all the prayers that I'm praying at the altar. You can listen to the music. You can join in, whatever. Uh, you can have your own prayers. You can sit and contemplate, whatever. There's that. So I would kind of give them the selling points. Like, do you want a beautiful mystical experience? Well, okay, I'll try that. Well, sounds good. I'll try it once. I'll try anything once. You know, will you try that? Will you try the Latin Mass? But when I say try, because it's so different, you have to, 
you know, it's not like Nutella, which wins you over on the first try. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm sold, totally sold. It's, it's more like chartreuse or something. It's like, that was interesting. I'll have another, you know, and keep trying it. Need, need to keep trying it. So that's, so, but no, it's a good question. Um, and um, keep, the other thing is, is to keep plumbing the depths. The more someone sees how much you love it, then that is that's a great selling point, you know that that this is really important to you, and especially if they're family, they realize that it's important to you that it's it's something that also is working for you in the sense of that you're growing in virtue, that you're more prayerful that you're you're really wearing the badge Christian in a positive way, a good way than that then that speaks well for what causes that there's a hand. Attached to an arm that is raised. Thank you so much for your talk, Father. Um, my welcome. question is basically how do we or how does the church balance the need for both preserving the good, true, and beautiful traditions, particularly liturgical traditions of the church, um, but then also allowing the Holy Spirit, uh, being open to the Holy Spirit and allowing it to help the church to grow um, in the liturgy and in its uh, actions, um, particularly because, uh, like, although a lot of the aspects of the Mass were present at the Last Supper, not all of them were. So there right. was a legitimate development and growth. So how do we or the Church uh, tell the difference between a legitimate growth prompted by the Holy Spirit and just innovation for the sake of innovation? Well, that's the whole great thing about tradition. We have 2,000 years of something to compare it to. So, and that, that's the thing that's really important to remember, um, whether it's liturgical studies, theological studies, morals, is the burden of proof is on the novel, not on tradition. The burden of proof is on the novel, not on tradition. Tradition has proved itself, right? In, in the tradition, name the saints... We've got the saints. If you de deviate from what the saints do, if you deviate from the tradition as received, you're in unknown territory. Now, it may be proved that this novel thing, even though it might not be understood or accepted by um, even churchmen of your own era, right? It might not, it may be proved to be consonant with the tradition, but the first thing is okay, what does the tradition say? If it's contrary, then obviously you already have your rule, right? The rule of faith. The tradition is a, 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 a proximate rule of faith. Um, if it's something new, I mean, because a lot of things that we consider traditional now were at one point new, like the Dominicans. I never, I, I studied with the Dominicans in D.C. I love the Dominicans, uh, the, one of the best habits in the church. Um, absolutely brilliant founder. I think St. Dominic and St. Benedict were probably the, the two best. Um, they understood human nature very, very well. And their, their two orders are, are the best examples, I think, of, 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 of understanding human nature. But at one point, they were new. And they had a hard time, especially with secular priests and, and the bishops and things. But what they were doing was, in a sense, traditional. If you look in the Old Testament... 
the prophet, we often think prophets are someone who predicts the future. That is not the role of an Old Testament prophet. That is not the, the, the role of anyone who has a kind of gift of prophecy. The prophets of the Old Testament always call back to the tradition. Go back to what you did. If you look in the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, I forget the letter to which church it was, it's the, the critique of that church by our Lord was, you lost your first love. You've deviated. So we always have to look with a bit of skepticism and suspicions at novel things. Allowing, of course, for the Holy Spirit to work. But the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself because he's truth. And so he will never lead us outside of that which is within the wide berth of what is traditional. So that's one of the reasons that it's necessary for us to preserve tradition, in not only in its content, but in its forms. Because the forms protect the content, right? We often think, we, an image is, if the deposit of faith is the diamond in a ring, the, all the forms and the liturgy and all those man, quote-unquote, man-made traditions are the setting to set it off and to protect it. So that's, and which, which we have a lot of to, to steer a question in the way I want to. Uh, a topic that I want to talk about now uh, is in the traditional Latin Mass, we have all these traditional small ceremonies, all these things, um, the communion rail, the communion cloth, the communion paten, um, certain gestures, the fact that the, the priest, once the consecration occurs, we do not separate these fingers because they've touched the host, is all protecting, is in a sense a symbolic way of all the tradition protecting the deposit. We're protecting the reality. We're protecting the truth. These other things aren't, aren't the deposit, but in a sense are necessary to protect it. Si claro? Okay. I can go on and on, but I won't. Until you ask the next question, and then I'll keep continuing on. Good evening, Monsignor. Oh, it's one of my ringers. <laughs> All right. Uh, I was wondering if you could kind of explain why the church chose the language of Latin for the Mass. Um, because Greek is hard. <laughs> I have attempted to study both, and, and Greek is hard. Uh, it's a totally different alphabet and everything. But originally, I mean, the, the language of the church was Greek, right? And, of course, um, our Lord spoke Aramaic and probably knew some Greek, probably knew, obviously knew Hebrew, probably knew some Latin. Um, but Latin became the common tongue, and so it shifted into Latin. Now, here's the very interesting thing when we look over, because we have such a great perspective on history, not just church history or tradition, but just history in general, with the eyes of faith, we can see how masterful God is in using our free will to write what he wants. Right? Because Latin is a beautiful language. It's a very precise language. And there are, are many things to speak for the sake of Latin. Um, so you can see in the hand of providence that at some point the church adopted that not only as her liturgical language in the West, but as the official language of the Holy See. So that's um, more than that. I mean, there's, there are some practical things of why. That was just the, the vulgar language at the time. But then once other modern Romance languages developed out of Latin, French, Portuguese, Spanish, um, 
not German, uh, not English, even though there are some Latin words that they use, they've co-opted. Latin remains because of, partly because of the expressions of the faith. There's this traditional sense of why Latin remained in use even after the Romance languages. Because the formulations of the faith were in that language. And the definitions of those terms were understood by those terms. And that's very important. That's, that's one important thing with the, the, the queen of all heresies. You all know what the queen of all heresies is? Modernism, which is condemned by Pius X. And one of the ways of spotting a modernist is using the same term with a different meaning. Beware of those people because they're a danger to the faith. They'll use the same term so it sounds Catholic, but they understand it in a different way. And that's why modernism is so dangerous. But before that, that's one of the reasons the church kept the same language because she was also keeping the same meaning. Right? We didn't necessarily say that Aristotle's hylomorphic system was, is Catholic, but we definitely use a lot of his philosophical terms in explaining the teaching of the church. Accident and substance. In order to have right understanding about the Holy Eucharist, we have to understand those terms. The term transubstantiation, right? it's a philosophical term, but the church has taken it to herself to explain the reality of the deposit which she has been given. The change of substance while the accidents remain. If you change the philosophy, you change the theology. That's why the church doesn't like modern philosophy because they also mess around with language. But that's a little bit far afield, which you're probably very interested in, Zachary, aren't you? Sorry. Uh, I should ask, did that sufficiently answer your question? Thank you. Good. You weren't going to get any more anyway. Um, there's a fairly common impression among um, people who come to the Latin Mass for the first time that they're somehow falling in with something subversive, nefarious, illegal, um, or in other ways, nefarious. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the legal status of the Latin Mass, um, and specifically about Sumorum Pontificum, what Benedict was wanting to do with that. Um, well, uh, the, um, the Latin Mass has never been abrogated, which is a canonical term saying uh, forbidden or done away with. So the Latin Mass itself um, is completely legitimate to offer, to attend. Um, Simone Pontificum, one of the reasons, my understanding is that Benedict XVI gave us that great, that great gift, um, was to kind of bring back to the mainstream that which was what normal Western Catholics did not long ago. Um, that's why I actually I shy away from the term describing the Mass as the extraordinary form because it makes it sound like it's something like in a niche or like some sort of circus sideshow. It's not. And I don't think that was the intention of Benedict XVI. I think the intention of Benedict XVI, especially with that document, was to re-graft the liturgical tradition and the disciplinary tradition that of, of those who practice the Old Mass um, back into the mainstream of the body of the church, the normal 
mass of practicing Catholics. Because I'm, you know, it's your right. R-I-G-H-T-N-R-I-T-E. This is your patrimony. And, you know, thanks be to God that somebody has passed it on to us and that we're, we're preserving it. This is your right. This is your history. This is the faith that you have a right to because you're baptized. And as a Western Latin Rite Catholic, this is your tradition. So in one sense, it look at it as a gift. Also look at it as an obligation. Because of that, you have an obligation to pass it on. Therefore, you should know something about it. And I think that's what Benedict was after, is to get it to be very commonplace so that at least people will have access to that which was done by Catholics for millennia. Because I think it was he who said, that which was, was, that which was held as sacred before is held as sacred now. It's the same. It's the same. So does that, does that suffice? Thank you. I used to work for a bishop, and it was amazing at things like this that he would go to. Uh, he was amazing. He was amazing because somebody would ask a question that was a bit controversial, and I knew it was like, ooh, how's he going to answer this? And he would go on and on for like 10, 15 minutes, and then he'd say, and not talk about anything that was remotely re- <laughs> germane to the topic. And he said, did I answer your question? Everybody's like, uh-huh, thank you. <laughs> because it was a bishop, you know? So that's, that's why I wore this, so I could get that kind of answer. So... I will talk about something that's not germane, and you'll be happy. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's okay. I, um, that question that was just asked, uh, can you hear this okay? Okay. Um, I, I had seen a video of Archbishop Sample. He mm-hmm. gave a talk on the, the bishop as the guarantor of the, li- the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of used language like that, where he said he and the bishops in Michigan, when they went to visit in Rome... They visited Benedict the Sixteenth, and he said he he did that that motu proprio mm-hmm. uh, document because he wanted to to reconcile the church with her past. Right, that was the language he used, and i i didn't I didn't think it was that that big of a that big of a deal. But I guess I guess you know it is viewed as it's kind of a really really important. It is a big deal, and I I think I'm sorry. Are you, are you finished? I don't want to. Um, yeah, for, that's enough. I mean, no. I mean, it wasn't really a question, but I will still talk. Well, um, I, I, I had I had a question in there somewhere. But um, I, 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 oh, I, I do have a question. I'm sorry. Sorry. I wanted to to unite that to something else that he said. Uh, Archbishop Sample said that when they when they made the extraordinary form something that was going to be promoted, or you know, when he was up at Marquette in Michigan. It definitely changed the atmosphere, which was great. Yeah, well, he, he said he made the effort to go and learn how, how to do at least a low mass. Right. So he could be the first one to celebrate it. And then it wouldn't seem like some sort of weird, you know. You know Which uh, more bishops would celebrate it. Yeah, like, like something that's out of the ordinary, some like little traditionalist group acting sort of out of, right. a bit on the fringes or whatever. People with thumbs growing out of their forehead doing something weird in the dark. Yeah, and, and I, I was I was wondering, do you know if there's any plans for uh, Bishop Rhodes to like go up to LaSalle and have the guys that you know? The, He'll be the, here next week. You can ask him then. The, the canon, like the canons of St. John Canius, they train a bunch of people. 
Um, I, know, I, know, I know Bishop Rhodes is very favorable. He's been very, very good to us at St. Stanislaus. And the fraternity also has another Latin Mass parish in, uh, at Sacred Heart Fort Wayne. He's been very, very good to us. He's very favorable. Um, he understands the need for it. Um, he does our confirmations in the traditional rite. His, his Latin's actually pretty good. Um, I'm not one to judge because my Latin's actually pretty bad. So it seems good to me. Um, um, I, I don't know. It's difficult. Once you're a bishop, then your life is really not your own. It's, um, so it will be difficult for him to actually take time to learn it unless he, he was very motivated. Um, and I'm not sure if he has that kind of that time of, and motivation. Um, I know that he's attended. So you, as a prelate, you can attend the Mass. So he's attended the old Mass and things like that. Um, whether he's actually going to say it himself or not, I, I, that I don't know. Um, I would hope so. That would be uh, uh, an outcome devoutly to be wished. But you said something very interesting about um, what Benedict said about cutting the church off from her past. We, we are living... Um, it, philosophy takes a while for the effects to be felt kind of on the ground. And we're definitely feeling the effects now of rationalism and Hegelian dialectic, especially in the church. Um, so, and I think I'm speaking to a crowd, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm Gen X, I don't know what they call all of you, um, Gen Y, millennials, or whatever you are, but there is something that in common between these recent generations is that we are quite mobile. And our notion of connection with the past, whether it's a place or, 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 or family or whatever, is very different than generations previous to us. And that is also writing itself out in the church. So this is one of the reasons I'm really very happy myself to have found tradition, to find a home, to find a connection um, and I would encourage you to that if you're looking for something like that to find it perhaps in the Latin Mass um, and at least to find it in the church because we all need a home. And that's one of the reasons I kind of structured those questions for your uh, discussion time the way I did is that a disruption of tradition is in a sense a loss of home. The church is supposed to be home and we're supposed to be in a sense a family, right? And we're we're family with the saints, and there's this traditions that this family has that are passed on to us and that we need to identify with to, to have a place in. Um, I'm not sure if I'm striking a chord or, or making any sense, but I, I definitely at least feel that in myself, that there's a lack of, sometimes I call it a lack of loyalty. I only say that because I have no virtue, and you know, loyalty is a virtue. Um, but there, there seems to be a lack of loyalty because... It's many, many times institutions have failed me or my generation, right? So we don't trust them. So we're always on the lookout for the truth wherever we can find it. And then once I found the fraternity in the Latin Mass, I'm like, oh, it's all right here. Very, very handy. Um, but there's something I think that mimics society at large and some things that we've experienced in the church with the radical upheaval before any of us, most of us anyway, were born, we have no experience of, and there's all that sort of baggage that we don't have, but we're living in the aftermath. And it's kind of like, yeah, I wasn't in Hiroshima when they dropped the bomb, but they haven't rebuilt it yet, so I'm, I'm part of the cleanup crew. 
you know, what's, what's going on in the world that we've got to, it's not fair, but it's every generation's we've got to clean up the other's mess and we try not to make as much of a mess ourselves, even in the church. And that's why understanding and being docile tradition is so important, is to receive it, keep it, and pass it on. We want to thank you, Avon Senior. So 